then there was this there's a place called Mike's Diner. It was it was on the same block as where we first worshipped, and uh, it's it's affordable and welcoming, and everyone goes in there. The Pratt professors go in there. The past the, the long time pastors from the Baptist churches go there. The people go there. The old folks go there. The kids go there. Everybody's there, and it's just it's just an accessible, open place, and it doesn't really send off any of those kind of weird vibes one way or the other. It's just open to everybody. And I was like, I don't know what it means to be a Mike's Diner church, but that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to be a Mike's Diner church. Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Embedded Church Podcast, where we share stories about walkable churches creating new levels of belonging with their neighbors. I'm Eric Jacobson. And I'm Sarah Joy Propay, and we'll be your hosts on today's episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. I'm really excited to share with you this conversation that we had with Jameson Galt. Jameson is the pastor of Resurrection Church Clinton Hill, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. What I really enjoy about this conversation is how it reveals Jameson's MO for getting to know a place. Jameson has a way of exploring a neighborhood that reminds me of Jane Jacobs' methodology. Jane Jacobs turned the discipline of urban planning on its head by ignoring what the experts were telling her and simply walking around and making observations. In a similar fashion, Jameson gets to know his neighborhood of Clinton Hill by walking around. And interestingly enough, that same methodology led the two of us to meeting as well. I really had a great time talking to Jameson, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. All right. Well, Jameson, welcome to the Embedded Church Podcast. Good to have you here today. Thank you. For Thank you. Yeah. Before we start today, I want I do kind of want to tell the story of how we met because it's one of my favorite stories. Um, so Jameson and I, we go back seven and eight years or so, maybe something like that. 2003, I think. I think you had read something by me or whatnot. And, and uh, so you're in Brooklyn and I'm in Tacoma. Yeah. And uh, you, you knew that I existed, I think, through stuff I had written. Yeah. And then you were out in my neck of the woods visiting uh, a relative who was in the hospital or something. And you wanted to connect with me. But unlike normal people who want to connect with me, you decided not to email. So you decided you would just walk around the neighborhood, you know, just getting from one thing to the next and thought you might just run into me. And lo and behold, I was bringing homebound communion to one of our elderly members who lives about three blocks away. And I was walking down the street carrying my communion kit. And here comes this guy who I don't recognize coming my way. And he goes, Eric Jacobson. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and it was you. And anyway, we had coffee and anyway, became friends. But anyway, you are uh, living in Brooklyn. And uh, eventually I went out and visited you and, and met some of your people out there in Brooklyn. You are at Resurrection Church uh, in Clinton Hill. How, how long have you been there? I've been in Brooklyn for 14 years, trained at the sort of first church plant in another neighborhood. Uh, for four years. And then eight years ago, we planted Resurrection Clinton Hill in the Clinton Hill section of Brooklyn. So yeah, we started in January of 2012. Well, I have very little geographic knowledge about Brooklyn. So can you explain where Clinton Hill falls within Brooklyn? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the really quick way to say it is in New York City, is composed of five boroughs. Right. Uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn is the largest, uh, uh, popu- the most populated borough. Uh, this just dwarfs Manhattan's population, just so you know. It uh, does? Yeah, I think Are we're like, 
No, I think we're like 2.8 million and they're like 1.6, something like that. Yeah. So Brooklyn's got a lot of, I mean, it's, it's something like, depending on how you break up, like over 90 discrete neighborhoods. And in my section, there's three bridges that come from lower Manhattan into Brooklyn. Um, and that would be the furthest one south would be the Brooklyn Bridge, if you've ever walked that. And that kind of comes into the really beautiful little bucolic, like Brooklyn Heights and like downtown Brooklyn, where it's, we have our version of sky rises and stuff. And then uh, at the north end, uh, there's the Williamsburg Bridge, which comes into Williamsburg, which has become famous over the last 20 years for being one of the epicenters of hipsterdom. You've probably heard of it. <laughs> yep. Um, and then right between that, there's the Manhattan Bridge that kind of comes over uh, into what's called Dumbo, uh, a neighborhood down underneath the Manhattan Bridge overpass and into the Navy Yard almost. And then if you were just to walk over Manhattan Bridge and keep kind of moving, that's when you hit my sort of uh, swath of neighborhoods, basically. So Clinton Hill is actually a micro neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's like eight blocks wide and how, but there's a whole sort of section there. If you were to walk from, from downtown, there's Fort Greene, uh, Clinton Hill, and then Bedford Stuyvesant. And those kind of, there's no physical border between those. Now, do you live close to the church? You live in Clinton Hill? Yeah. We worship about 10 minutes from my house. When you say 10 minutes, do you mean on, on wheels or walking? 10 minute walk. Yeah. Love that. It's probably eight or 10 blocks. We've actually been there for longer than the churches. We moved 10 years ago for our kids to get into the local public school in, in time when they were starting school and also because we were about to adopt. So we've kind of got our feet there. So we've been there 10 years in the same apartment now. Wow. That's awesome. That is great. So we're here to talk to you today about your church context, your neighborhood context. And for you, that gets to be the same place, right? Living and working, which is awesome. I would want to know what have been some of the ways that you've been influenced in that journey as you've just learned more about what it means to live out urban living missionally and in your neighborhood. And have there been particular influences on you? Yeah. I mean, I think one is very personal sort of existential answer to that is that uh, I grew up as a, a military brat in my youngest years. So all my family's from uh, Washington state, but we lived in, well, I could do it fast, Florida, California, Tacoma, North Carolina, all by the time I was nine, my parents split up and my dad was continued to go overseas and all across the nation. And I would go stay with him some. And then we went to randomly some friends in Texas to just like kind of have a couch to crash on with my mom. And we were there in a couple of different spots. And that was where I lived the longest. I remember if you had asked me when I was like 18, there's only two things I wanted in life. I was like, I would like to get married and never, ever get a divorce. And I would like to find one place I'm going to live and live there for the rest of my life. Um, so I don't know, you know, those are things you say when you're young and feeling things, but uh, I did always sort of want that to find a, just find a place to root down and to stay and to kind of have the, enjoy the, the benefits and the fruits of longevity in life. Um, so I think we were, when we had a chance to come to New York, we were excited and could imagine staying here forever. I do think I live in one of the best neighborhoods and one of the best cities on the planet. So I'm, I'm super grateful. <laughs> so you're not moving anytime soon. <laughs> I hope not. In putting down your own roots there in Clinton Hill, why would you say that it's important for churches to think about putting down roots in a neighborhood? Well, some of this is well trod territory, you know, like just go back to the basics of uh, our faith and our 
our theological tradition and, you know, incarnating and embedding and embodying things. I'm sure we'll come back to this, but it's been, it's been extremely interesting how quick I've had to adapt to virtual life because I had very intentionally not done any of that. Everything we do is hyper-local and hyper-personal. John Frame has this, theologian has this sort of missional paradigm and, and on one side is what's normative and that is would be the things that are normative if you from your tradition uh and that you just have to do in all times in all places and then there's the sort of like personal which would be either as an individual or as a faith community what are your unique gifts um what are what are your fears what are your hopes what are your limits what do you what can you contribute what can you receive what are you open to that sort of stuff and then there's the local, the contextual, the place, um, the neighbor question. And you have to ask that. That's just an integral part of your mission to find out what their hopes are, what their fears are, what their uh, challenges are, what their gifts are. I mean, that was a big thing is I think especially church planters are like super, super, super guilty because they, they really have a dream. They, they want to help. They're usually, not always, but they're usually younger and idealistic and um, and they have to raise money. So they tend to overstate the need of a place and overstate their contribution that they're going to be able to make. When I found that what's, what's been most interesting here is when you humble yourself, how much there is to celebrate and how much there is to let it shape your mission. I mean, I don't want to put a number on it, but I'm really not doing any of the stuff I thought I was going to be doing 10 years ago especially now, but even a year ago, I was, uh, you kind of have to adapt. And of course I do the things I do like preach and sacraments and care for people and create community. But, uh, I had all kinds of dreams and instead you follow and that's what ministry is. And that's what mission is, you know? So. So can you give us, I know you talked about kind of where Clinton Hill is and where Brooklyn is and all that stuff, but give, give, help us get a little more on the ground feel of your neighborhood. You walk outside of your church what are we going to see? What's, what's, what's around the block and what can you walk to? Yeah, well, it's really dense. Fort Greene through Clinton Hill and Bed-Stuy uh, has, a, as of last check, like 225,000 people in it. Um, and you could probably walk it in an hour uh, from end to end. It's got a long history, you know, uh, but the most recent history, the latter half of the 20th century, is it's been predominantly and proudly and like beautifully African-American. It's kind of like the the sort of Harlem of Brooklyn, the list is so long of people that have come out of this neighborhood from Richard Wright um, to Spike Lee, uh, uh, Notorious B.I.G., Jay-Z. Like you could just keep going down the the, the luminaries. Uh, Colson Whitehead is here in the neighborhood now. There's just like lots of people doing really amazing stuff. And especially in the arts, it's been a very, very creative sort of black bohemian kind of neighborhood. But all that to say, but even before that had happened, it was near the Navy Yard. So it was like a Irish and Italian immigrant people working in the Navy Yard kind of neighborhood. So it's actually always been diverse, which is not is actually not true in New York. New York as a city is a diverse. But in a lot of neighborhoods, you walk through and you're like, I am now in the Hasidic neighborhood. And there's no one but the Hasids here. And then you're in the next neighborhood and it's primarily you know, Dominican, but it's also not usually so mixed. And it's been pretty mixed in our neighborhood. I mean, Pratt Institute is, is a really prestigious art school. It's, it's, it's two blocks from my house. 
Um, it's just kind of always had that mix of artsy, diverse people. And that's a big part of what we decided our mission to be. And there's a lot of multiracial families, as mine is now, a lot of mixed families. That's a big part of it um, in terms of demographics. Uh, I would say artistic, sort of very multiracial, but still, even with gentrification happening, this 60 or 70 percent African-American and uh, and then really mixed economically. Uh, uh, I know that's one of the things Eric and I uh, chatted about a little bit earlier is it's one of the reasons we were OK coming here, um, especially as white folks in a predominantly black neighborhood was we knew gentrification couldn't just like wipe out the neighborhood because there's so much institutional stuff there. Namely, there's a very strong upper and middle-class black population homeowners, you know, they actually got together in the seventies and eighties and people would come and try to knock on the door and hand them a bag of money. And they would team up as a collective to help people not do that and like do whatever they needed to do to, to stay and keep their homes. And so there's just like lots of solidarity and neighborhoodiness and, um, and that, and then there's also a built environment mix. So it's just three to sometimes $6 million brownstones and old from the standard oil area. There's a row of houses that is all like mansions. There's the old wood facade houses that are 200 years old in some cases. And then there's also just lots of big high rises that are sometimes mixed income and sometimes just um, affordable housing. And then there's throughout the whole place, there's just, a, I don't know, it's, it might be a half a dozen or more um, super blocks of, of New York City Housing Authority, NYCHA uh, public housing project, the projects. So, so it's a super mix. We value a sense of place on this podcast. We love the quirky and particular things that make our local environments distinct. Jameson loves the local as well. He appreciates the fact that there are very few national chains in his neighborhood. Most of the businesses are locally owned. But he also notes a downside to the idea of place. Sometimes the concept of place is used to keep people out. Some stores seem to send the message that this is not a place for people like you. But some establishments have figured out a way to be a welcoming place for everyone. Jameson wants his church to be a place like that. Can I... Focusing a little bit on uh, on the physical char- like characteristics, like a lot of residential, but is there are there some commercial things on near the church? Are there coffee shops? Are there stores? Yeah, definitely, definitely near where the church is. I think if you walk further deeper into Brooklyn and you get into Bed Stuy, it becomes almost well, there, it becomes a lot more just just housing and residential. But where we are, there's um, at least three avenues that are mixed use of all, all sorts of small businesses. Very few chains, which is great. We have a major park right near where the church is, Fort Green Park, where people congregate and gather. But of course, there's all kinds of um, public events there, especially in the summer, uh, concerts and, and whatnot. You got your hardware stores and your wine stores and just like lots of mostly smaller businesses. Right. Do you have a favorite spot to hang out when you're near your church and you want to meet someone not in your office? I am in an office right now. And I've okay. had this office since March. And I never really had my own office before this. So yeah. I worked in a coffee shop or wherever for all these yeah. years. Um, yeah. Church planters kind of use that as their office normally. Yeah. 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 I just, I honestly would sometimes grab a, uh, a Cortado from this little shop next to our Fort Green Park and just go for a walk if we can. 
I'm curious about the mix of businesses. Are they affordable at different price points as well? Or is it a lot of boutique type stuff? Or what does the environment look like in that regard? It's mostly a mix. And sometimes I, w- I wonder how it works because I want to be sensitive here. I talk to this to people about this all the time. And, and I have a lot of just got a lot of guidance from people about how to try to be careful talking about this and just like actually talk about things and not, not talk about them, but also try to do it with sensitivity. But sometimes in our neighborhood, you can tell when there's like a sort of older kind of, it's been around for a really long time and you wonder, no one's coming in and you wonder how they pay the rent or whatever. And, and that can be of any sort that could be black or white. It's just that it's not really it doesn't seem welcoming to, to anybody, you know? And then there's the ones that are on the other end that you could tell they came in and someone spent some brand new fresh money and it's super boutique and it's like somebody's first initial and a beautiful last name. And it's, you're not really sure who buys any of that stuff. Uh, and that's also not as welcoming. And I guess they both have enough of a, their, their clientele to, to make it work for us for a while. But then there's a lot of places that you can just tell are just kind of, got the vibe of the neighborhood and are kind of open to people, whether it's a restaurant or, I mean, this wasn't the question you asked, but I, I remember one of the things I, I said when we were starting is, and this is more about the racial part of it, but whether it's the font or what they're doing, there are plenty of restaurants in the neighborhood that you're like, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's like kind of intended for the black folks, you know, and that's mostly who goes there. And then there's like, this is obviously kind of, whatever it is like this is a 25 dollar avocado toast like this is not that's not for the black folks so much you know that's for these newbies coming in with all this money and then there was this there's a place called mike's diner it was it was on the same block of where we first worshiped and uh it's it's affordable and welcoming and everyone goes in there the pratt professors go in there the past, the, the long time pastors from the Baptist churches go there. The people go there. The old folks go there. The kids go there. Everybody's there. And it's just, it's just an accessible open place. And it doesn't really send off any of those kind of weird vibes one way or the other. It's just open to everybody. And I was like, I don't know what it means to be a Mike's Diner church, but that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to be a Mike's Diner church. That's what I was wondering is like, what are the characteristics there and the people there who, you know, who run that business that makes it that way? How do you capture that? I'm not totally sure. It certainly is a spirit, but I yeah. definitely it's some, it's about the kind of messages that you're sending off. Right. And the access points, like it's affordable for one thing, but it's also hearty and it's welcoming and it makes people feel good and probably representation, you know, like yeah. the staff is represented by represents the neighborhood, things like that. So you live in the neighborhood. What about others at your church? Do most of the people who attend your church live in the neighborhood as well? With two really strange outlying cases, uh, everyone in my church lives within two miles of our congregation. I think probably upwards of half or more live where I can walk to them within 15 or 20 minutes walking. So most of the people are very nearby everybody's bus ride uh, or one or two subway stops away. We've got folks that are born and raised here. We do have a number of folks that have been here 20 years. And then we also just get a lot of folks that kind of have been here for 10 years or less. The way people find us usually is either word of mouth or they Google. And there's like this little ecosystem of church plants that they're kind of looking for something like this. And then they go and they come. And so you're kind of self-selecting 
the people that come and visit anyways, but I haven't really, I haven't found a, a long-term uh, answer to that because we've, we've been in four buildings in eight years and we right. don't have any public space except for three hours on a Sunday. Right. That we right. Rent. So oh, yeah, cause you're not, you don't own the building. Usually you're renting. Yeah. I mean, and especially in a neighborhood like this, there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of churches and a lot of beautiful churches. And, and, and especially, you know, if you're a remotely traditional black folk, it's kind of like, it doesn't necessarily feel like real church unless you got a building, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how does someone establish a sense of belonging in your neighborhood? If you got somebody, um, you know, fairly recently moved here and they're a friend of yours and, and you want to help them feel a sense of belonging, how do you, how do you do that? Going back to what I was saying a little earlier, we never really did a, a vision statement because okay. I had dreams, which is like, we have, I'll give you one. We have a ton of people that are doing amazing things outside of them doing it privately. They don't have like a platform for that. They're not famous. They're not rich. And none of us has any available space to do things anywhere. So I like artists, chefs, actors, like uh, just this amazing musicians, like amazing. Uh, at first it was like, you know, we're going to try to become a certain kind of church and we want to be multiracial and we want to be da da da, and had ideas about stuff we might do. And especially it was a lot of it was very justice based at first, but it wasn't until recently that we sat down and re I wanted to have a more focused and also kind of attenuated, like what can we actually do? Yeah. Like what are, what are we doing? Well, what can we do? And, um, let's just make that our mission. And the way that I, the way that I did it was, especially given the transients, it was like, sometimes we get people for only three years, sometimes for less. That's a lot of our, a lot of folks. What could be a vision that would keep people here for, if you knew that you were coming for three years, that you would be a more such and such kind of person for being a part of our church in three years and the same thing for 30. So I said from three to 30 years, we identified these virtues that we have already that God had worked in our community. And the first one was welcome. And I realized that primarily by being the only multi-ethnic church in our area, which we have not accomplished at any at any level to my hopes or whatever, like my idealistic young hopes, but that are, that are factually true in terms of the evidence across America, you know, meeting the statistical categories. And it's, it's been a lot of good growth in that area that already is welcoming. Like people, people, they come in and they're, you're going to see someone like you in the congregation and usually up front when possible. Uh, I want people to come in and feel that they would be welcomed. And I do hear that from almost everyone that comes through um, even people that, that don't stay, they say that this is one of the most welcoming congregations we've ever met. And, and some of that, I'm not sure how to attribute it to other than that's the spiritual gift that God has, has given us. So we, I think making worship accessible, keep your normative and you keep your personal, but you're also trying to be attentive to everyone that would come in. And then we do parish groups because again, we don't have a space, but we kind of try to get people cared for right away and immediately identify what your parish is, which is those three micro neighborhoods and a couple nearby ones. The parish is here for you. And that's where you can send prayer requests. And that's where um, there's a weekly meeting usually. And you're welcome to go to that. But it's also where we're trying to run meals ministries through there when people need things or uh, try to make sure we have enough like of our mercy team or deacons and folks and elders spread throughout those groups so that you would feel like you're a part of a family. 
when you're here. Then connecting your congregation to the life of the neighborhood. How have you done some of that? And has that changed over the years? Has the neighborhood changed over the years? I'll do has the neighborhood changed over the years part first, because it's actually kind of easier and people have an imagination and experience of these things at this point. But uh, the closer you are to downtown Brooklyn, uh, the more it's gentrified more quickly than the deeper into Brooklyn you go. And then if you're off the train line at the bottom of the neighborhood that goes into Manhattan, then that's that anything on that has changed and gentrified, which is to say become more wealthy and usually more white. Um, so the neighborhood has changed a lot and a lot more money's come in. But I would say in some ways a lot less than neighborhoods nearby, you know, because of all that infrastructure that was already in place. Right. So it hasn't changed as much. And then in terms of our interaction with the neighborhood, there's a couple parts of that. We started by supporting or celebrating what was already here that we could. The New York City Marathon runs right down one of our main streets. It actually runs down the street we started worship on and that we're where three of our four locations have been on this little stretch of Lafayette Avenue. And it's a, one of the best parts of the New York city marathon because everyone comes out and there's high school jazz bands playing the Rocky theme 1 million times. And then there's like the, our first host church is this historic and famous and vibrant, large African-American church. And they come out with their gospel choir and the band. And it's just all this community involvement. So we went out and, uh, of course, handed out information about our church, but also gave away free home-baked goods. And uh, it's always on All Saints Sunday, which I think is just hilarious and amazing because it's like Hebrews 12, run the race uh, on, with this cloud of witnesses, you know, and then in the race. So we went out and did that. And then we went around identifying places where we could actually serve. So that was the second piece. First piece was just kind of celebrating what was here and we could be a part of. The second is service. Um, and in some ways that's been a more complicated journey because the issues we found were that here the needs were either so staffed. So for example, I'm not, there's a bunch of nonprofits dedicated to a problem and they don't actually know how to manage a volunteer, a short volunteer army on a Saturday of 50 people. They actually just want money. So we didn't know how to like, help with a lot of those things. And then the other issue was it's too systemic. Like I can't fix affordable housing. My congregation can't do that, but you just keep at it. And then we found little things. Um, we were able to do some stuff in Fort Green park and just beautify it and help turn this one thing into a garden. And then it was right at the day I gave up. I actually gave up and I was like, I just give up. We're not going to be a serving church. That's just not going to happen. And I, I feel really ashamed about that. And it was kind of like my cynical give up moment. And then the next week, um, the city just contacted some of our folks and that we put a bid in and they, they gave us management of it was kind of a derelict space and they wanted to turn it into a community garden. And we had a bunch of people that just knew how to do stuff like that. Chefs and farm to table people and whatever. And so, uh, our neighbor, our, our theme at that time, our slogan for our church is that we want to be a church for the whole neighborhood. So it's, it's still there. It's called the whole neighborhood garden, but we've got it all done and we made sure it was equitable so that the old timers had a stake in it and new, newcomers and it's theirs now. We fix it up and get it to them. So, but there's, 
not as many of those as I would like because it's just hard to figure out how to do that. It, it tends to be more interpersonal service and taking care of people. Um, we've partnered with larger organizations. My wife started uh, an organization here in New York that's a, a chapter of it called Safe Families um, for Children. And so we've just partnered with them a lot because that's the thing we can actually do is provide care for people. So sometimes it's just thinking outside of your own little church world, which I think is great for 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 kingdom work, for city and church work. Like it's not about me and my ego. It's not about my church building a reputation. And if I can just be a servant and a participant here, then I'm part of this greater whole. And so the last one I was going to say was actually just partnering with other churches in the neighborhood. If you're a church leader, you've probably experienced disappointment in ministry. You have an idea, you mobilize people, and it falls flat on its face. It's pretty humbling to go through an experience like that. However, sometimes God surprises you by providing a ministry opportunity that you didn't plan for. That happened to Jameson and his church as they tried to take some first steps in engaging their neighborhood. I don't always get to tell the story because people don't always ask. And here I am on a podcast with you fine folks who are actually asking about this stuff, so it's good. Especially if there are pastors and church planters out here. And Eric, you could probably speak to this as, as someone passionate church that has a historic presence in the neighborhood. But um, one of the journeys that I and a lot of my fellow church planters went through here in New York was there weren't a lot of people doing church plants in Brooklyn when we got here. So you're like, this is going to be amazing. We'll be a part of this movement. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, every denomination has come in to plant their flag over the same territory, <laughs> honestly. And people can just church shop through all the little gentrified neighborhoods. and and um, it kind of keeps, therefore, it keeps the churches in some ways smaller than they would be because, you know, there's a small slice of folks that are, uh, some of them can't last because of that. And so it's it just, it's hard to do anything institutional. But one of the things I'm proud of, and no one's done this to me, so I'm not mad about it, but I'm just saying, if you're listening and you're planting the church, do this. This is the best thing I ever did. I had a year where I was still an assistant pastor nearby. I spent that year visiting as many of the local churches in my neighborhood that I could. I'd just go and worship with them. And then I'd learn everything I could from them. It wasn't like, I was like, what are they doing great? Where do they seem like they're weak and they, they might use some assistance? What can I learn from them? What can I possibly offer in terms of our congregation helping? And then I t- went up and met and talked to each pastor and asked them for coffee. And then when I have coffee with them, I would say, here's what we're hoping to do. Would we be welcome? Like, do you want us here? Are we going to be a help to you? Or are we going to be a help to this neighborhood? I didn't know what some of them would say. I took all those people out to coffee and I wanted to hear whether they wanted us there or not. And I, I thought some of them would be like, no, what are you thinking? Get out of here. Every single person said, please come. And how, and how can we help? And what can we do together? And that's my Rolodex. I check in with those folks a minimum of once a year. A few of them I check in with all the time. And that's how we've ended up in the the best partnerships we've done, the places we've been able to worship whenever we need to move to a new worship stuff, that kind of defined our mission. And the, the, just the very first one was, it changed everything we did. It was the 3,000 member historic African-American church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, with Pastor Trufant, who is now one of my mentors. And I, he's on, he's on, I text him, every, I had to do a virtual funeral for the first time during this. And I text him like, for an African-American family. And I'm like, Trufant, what do I do? You know? He's there for me. I'm receiving from him. When he heard what we were doing, he, he intimidated me for a while to find out what I was going. I thought he was really mad at me. 
And then when we got done, I was like, I want to go home and have a sip of whiskey because that was going really bad. And I don't know why he's threatened by me because he's the one with the big church. And, and then he just, he smiled and he goes, I think that we should host you in our church. And I think we should do it for as cheap a rent as you can possibly afford. And I think I should tell everyone in the neighborhood with my megaphone about you guys. And I'll even send some of our people to you that aren't members. Maybe they've just been kind of on the edge. We'll just encourage them to be with you. And that was, and that's where we started. And that's, we started early than we wanted to. And we started an evening service, which I did not want to do because that's the slot they had. And that really shaped us. That shaped us after time. We had kind of outgrown the space and we were getting bumped a lot. And, but that was good for us. We were there like reversing the gentrification narrative. Like we're not some big new white institution that's going to save the neighborhood. Instead, we're trying to do this. And the neighborhood is blessing us and embracing us with this physical building with these people. And all my good stories are ones that come from that kind of work. My question has been in the back of my mind ever since you started talking, you talk about these four locations, like that was the first, how did you get, you know, two, three, and now four, like, do you have some systematic way that you figure out where you're going next? That first year I walked every block of the neighborhood and I, I took stock of every single space that possibly could be used and also, it's just fun to learn about your neighborhood. So everything, I like, this is the block that Biggie Smalls is from or whatever. But I was also taking stock of where's a space that you could rent and have up to 100 people in it or whatever. And, and, and that list is very short. So I knew what they were. And so when it was time, well, actually, in that case, I didn't even, I was never going to ask Trufant. He just offered early. So we did it. Uh, but since then, when I've gone back, I, I, I go around and talk to folks. Uh, you just heard the story of our first thing. We were there for a, a year. And we just kind of outgrew the space. It was a fellowship hall room. But the thing that was really cool about that space, our church, this is the normative meets the personal and also meets the local as an attempt, but we do what I call expressive liturgical worship. We have weekly Eucharist and we have sort of the historic flow of, of church from call, confession, the dialogue and conversation part and the communion, all that commission. But we wanted to be really expressive, um, to take the Bible seriously and to like kneel and to stand up and to clap and to raise hands and to do those things, which happen to also be natural in this community and in these churches. And it just so happened that one of the guys on my plant team that had been here for 20 years in the neighborhood doing jazz music was ready to come and sort of help me shape the music. So we have, we have these different streams, uh, from the African American tradition, from gospel music, from contemporary stuff that we kind of reframe. So it's, it's not a hybrid hodgepodge. It all, it all is kind of gospel jazz. So all that to say, we're in this fellowship hall of this black Baptist church doing like Andre Crouch, and then also doing like a Trinity Presbyterian hymn, but with a little bit of a beat, you know, or whatever. And we're doing this <laughs> stuff and we're all jammed together. And that was the thing after a year, I was like, this is, this is what makes us us is that there's this energy. There's this life, like, we're doing liturgy, but it feels so alive and you can like, you can hear people next to you and you can, it's echoing and you can touch. And it's just like very spirit. This like, whatever it's hard to describe, this like energy is so palpable, but we needed a new space. So our second space that worked out for us, that was big enough was Anglo-Catholic uh, Episcopal building, but, but Caribbean congregation. So everything is painted in these crazy bright, blues and reds and pastels, but it's a huge, very like echoey, reverie, very Anglo-Catholic thing. We get in there 
And I had an out-of-body experience in the first season. I was like, everything that made our church special just died. Like, you couldn't feel it. It was just dark and distant. And it just, everything disappeared into the, this room. <laughs> so uh, that was a real challenge. We just did things like move the, I moved the lectern down in the middle of the people. We just not going up to the high altar and we just got closer. And, you know, like we did all the things we could do, but we were there for a couple of years. We finally are in the place we've kind of been dreaming of all along, which is we're partnering with this uh, church in the neighborhood that uh, has a smaller congregation, mostly sort of beautiful, beautiful older women of color. And we're there to provide really helpful and needed rent money and also uh, sort of manpower to help maintain and clean and beautify the space. And they're really open to us partnering with them more and more. So that's where I hope to be for a really long time, just partnering with them and maybe stewarding that space because we have not had the opportunity to steward space. In this next section, Jameson mentions the word perichoresis twice. Since not everybody knows this word, I thought it would be helpful to tell you what it means. Perichoresis is a word sometimes used by theologians to describe the Trinity. Its literal meaning is to dance around, and it is meant to describe the dynamic relationship between the three members of the Trinity. It can also be used to describe the substance and joy of human community. Since we are made in the image of God who is perichoretic, it makes sense that we tend to flourish when we are in community. So how have you guys transitioned to all this COVID crisis lockdown stuff? As, how has that impacted your ministry? I mean, it's, it's awful. It's terrible. Um, yeah. I know that everyone's going through the same thing. I just keep, I keep repeating this cause it's just the, uh, the shock of it is so profound here. You know, like when you're climbing a mountain and you think you've made it to the peak and then you realize it's just a ridge and you got to keep going. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, can I, can I make it? I felt like March was that in reverse. It's like I tripped and fell down, but this is the bottom. And then you come over and you're like, nope, now I'm tumbling. And then <laughs> and it, it wasn't until like around Easter that you hit bottom. So it was kind of like this just shock of stuff happening. But part of the shock was not simply the death toll. It's that. New York as a built environment. I mean, New York is the epitome of diversity and unity. People from every nation working together. There's no one person pushing a button. Like this is just some kind of crazy ecosystem. And it's so it's, it's like perichoresis, you know, it's like, it's like in and out and it's this dance and it's always happening. And it's predicated on sort of unity and diversity and self-sacrifice and giving and taking and sharing. Like, that's the one thing I would say, if I had to say one thing that makes New York really unique in America is that it's predicated upon sharing. You are sharing space. You're sharing sidewalk. You are sharing transit. You are sharing the public space. You are sharing everything. Sharing things you don't want to share sometimes, like walls and the n- noises and and all the stuff. If you're here and you like it, then that's like what makes New York, New York, New York. And that's what makes you New York. So when it started, it just, every single piece of it felt like anti gospel to me in my bones and in my mind. It was like, wait, first of all, I'm supposed to distance myself from my neighbor. No, that's, 
that's the anti-gospel. I'm not supposed to distance myself from my neighbor. And then you realize, like, you were losing New York as it went into lockdown or people fled the city. You, you lost your city. There's no dance. There's no perichoresis. It's just the silence with the endless sirens. So you, you've lost your home. And then it was anti-creation. Like, I can't touch this rail. I can't touch this doorknob. I can't touch that bus pole. So everything was like anti-matter. We just had a really quick learning curve because we have a small budget, basically no support staff. And I had to learn to do all the things really quickly that I've resisted the whole time I've ever done ministry. I'm learning Zoom for congregational meetings. And the week after that, I'm learning Google Meet to do this virtual funeral. I hope not to live this way. Although I will say, there's been, as I'm sure you've experienced, been really interesting things that come out of it. And, and that's opened me up to maybe we'll just keep a live stream up for people once we're back in a building because what harm is it? You know, so stuff that I was, it was probably my ego you know, being super principled guy or whatever. Has it brought to light some things that were more important than you realized? It sounds like you always knew embodied connection was important. So that maybe that yeah. wasn't a surprise. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously what I want to do most is to hug my members and to give them the passing of the peace and, and the body and blood of Jesus in person and to baptize this baby that was born I want to do all those things, but maybe it's a more personal lesson, a lesson that I'm learning. I haven't really even asked that yet, but especially in New York, but I find it in church circles, of course, uh, it's real easy to like let your ego or your church's ego be involved in what you're doing. And I'm not big enough or I'm not rich enough, or we didn't change the neighborhood enough. It still kind of comes back to how you feel about yourself and how you feel about your thing and your congregation or your name or whatever, we're a lovely, amazing hundred person congregation. And that's what we've been since almost the first year. And, and it's never changed. Like we've never had enough money. We've always run out of money and all those things. And right now I'm going to almost cry. If I say it, like, I love my people so much, you know? So, it's a good enough life and there's, there's, yeah. there's such good people. So if we could just be together, I kind of feel like, you know, to heck with all that other stuff about whatever happens, like the fact that we could still exist in a year, if we make it through this financially and otherwise, then man, let's just enjoy it. And let's, let's party and let's hug and kiss. And let's just, especially in New York is so busy. People work more hours here than anywhere. Just like, man, just this thing. This is life. This is life. Being together is life. There's a beautiful uh, uh, line at the opening chapter of Bonhoeffer's Life Together, where he just talks about the gift of Christian community. Like we take it for granted when we have it, you know, but so many people throughout history have been denied it for various reasons because of exile or persecution or whatnot. And when it's taken away from you, it, you realize just what a treasure it is to just physically be together with our congregation. It's cool. I think what I hear in that too is this idea of contentment and things being enough. Yeah. And I think we're really bad at that, <laughs> particularly as Americans. And the church has bought into that in so many ways too. Yeah. So I think it's really beautiful to hear you talk about the fact that 
you're a hundred people and you love those people and it's enough, yeah. you know? Yeah. I love so, it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it was really fascinating to hear just your context and New York City in the middle of all of this and New York City in general. Um, you know, it's such a different world, I feel like, <laughs> than so many of our other cities. Yeah, it's fun. And it brings people together. You have probably seen the every night at seven, we go out and everyone's in the neighborhoods cheering and clapping and ca- cars come by or honking. And I just, I hope for more of that, um, not just in New York City, but I hope that for our country. I, I, that's what I was preaching at Eastern basically every week is that if we'll let the suffering do its work, we can, we can actually be changed. You know, if we let death happen really like in, inside of our culture and inside of us, then we can, God will give new life and it would be great if we all cheered each other and helped each other and shared, shared more. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Amen. Awesome. Well, Jameson, thanks so much for being on our show. And uh, I'm really excited to share some of those stories that our listeners, I think they're going to resonate with a lot of what you've said. I know I have. So really appreciate your honesty and just the work you're doing there. It's really cool. Press on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you guys. Good to meet you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. We hope that you find the stories both inspiring and insightful. Be sure to check out our website, embeddedchurch.com, to find more info about today's episode, learn more about this podcast, and access helpful urbanism resources. And a good review goes a long way, so please take a moment to rate this podcast so we can successfully share more of the stories that shape the Embedded Church.